Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 232, Great Family Game Night Games. Kids games that are also fun for adults. Brought to you by our sponsor, Grand Gamers Guild. I'm Sean, and here with me, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. We're here live on Twitch, as we often are, Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. You're always welcome to stop by and see what some of what goes into making the show and hang out with our other fans in the lobby, our chat room. Now, fair warning, we did have a little lighting issue earlier, so Sean, start strobing. Don't be too concerned. It's it's a known issue that we hopefully have fixed at this point, but maybe not. Now, lately, it just uh, we've been playing a lot of games lately, which has been awesome. This year has been fantastic so far, 2024. Trying not to curse things, but it's been really good. And a lot of what we played just happens to have been family weight games that have been surprisingly engaging. Now, some of these are games we got for the kids, but we've also enjoyed playing with them and without them. And and some of these have actually been huge hits with my local game groups and, and some of our local gaming community. So tonight, what I decided we would do was share a list of great kids games. These are games marketed at kids. These are, are meant to be sold as kids games that experienced gamers will also enjoy playing, either with their kids or someone else's kids, with their grandkids or with other gamers. Now, to go with that, we're going to review two family-friendly games. Now, the first is Rec Raiders, which is the first game we've ever played from Kids Table Board Gaming. And the second is an abstract strategy game called Zensu, which is from Outset Media. And the reason I'm throwing that on here is because when you look up this one, it's supposedly, according to Board Game Geek, a wait one children's game. Now, we don't really agree with that, so you can stay tuned to find out why. Now, we're going to wrap up with a significant Bellhop's Tabletop segment because, as I said, we've been getting plenty of games and we didn't record last week. So we got two weeks worth of games to talk about. Now, this is going to include a lot of stuff off our pile of shame. So I'm going to share my first thoughts on Holotype, Destinies, and Maglev Metro. Ron's going to be sharing his first thoughts on Star Trek Super Skill Pinball, Zensu, Cartographer's Heroes, and Star Wars, the deck building game. And we're both going to share our first thoughts on the stuff of Legend. And maybe more. I may have forgotten something in this little intro list. Uh, like I said, we've been playing a lot of games, which is fantastic. Find links for these games and more through our show notes, which you can find at tabletopbellhop.com slash episode 232. That's 232. Links there may also be affiliate links, and some of the games we'll be talking about tonight, including both of our featured reviews, were review copies provided by publishers. All right, we're going to start by stopping by the suggestion box and go through one significant letter. Welcome to this week's suggestion box. All right, today we're just going to share one longer comment from longtime fan of the show who we haven't heard from for a while, so it's good to hear from Chris Groff, and this is in regards to our episode about playing games remotely. Well, Chris writes, I have a good friend that lives too many hours away to make face-to-face -face gaming a frequent thing. So we do log a lot of remote gaming. Between Board Game Arena and Tabletopia, there is really no comparison. BGA is just better. Yes, Tabletopia has games that BGA doesn't, but the BGA experience is just leaps and bounds better so we don't bother with Tabletopia. Inside of that, we have a number of Steam games like Root, Lords of Waterdeep, Dune Imperium, Everdell, Dominion, and probably a couple of others that we play regularly. For all of them, though, we just open up a Google Meet on the side and don't bother with any of the built-in chat tools. They're never as good 
And also, if we are switching games, we don't have to restart chats. Outside of that, I've been playing RPGs remotely and have used Foundry, Roll20, and just VidChat. While Roll20 and Foundry have cool tools, I personally prefer just VidChat and running the game traditionally. People roll dice. I may throw up the odd screenshot or whiteboard, but generally my goal is to recreate the face-to-face -face experience as close as possible. I find that using Roll20 and Foundry always comes with a level of distraction that takes me out of the game as a player and as a GM requires far too much effort to run correctly that I can't be bothered. Also, I can't think of a single time using either of those platforms that there hasn't been some technical issue that someone has run into from screens locking up, assets not showing up for someone's someone connections dropping. Again, I find that they are an additional layer that adds pretty graphics, but doesn't make the game run any better. Well, thanks for all of that info, Chris. And again, good to hear from you. It's been a little while. I think both of us are on the same page with you as regards to Tabletopia and I'll add any of the other virtual tabletops, VR-like um, simulated game tables, uh, like Tabletop Simulator. I know there's another really big one out there, and I'm drawing a blank on the name right now. Because whenever using those, there is an entire level of learning the interface there that's just annoying. And then even when you finally start to get used to it, it's still really easy to do the wrong thing without trying to. And that can sometimes ruin the entire game. And I'm not talking about like hitting the flip the table button. You can undo that easy enough. But if you draw a card, you shouldn't have or put something in the wrong deck or I, there's just so many ways you can mess up a game while playing on those virtual game spaces. Yeah, 100%. I, I think we both said in the episode that Board Game Arena requires you to know the game while yep. Tabletop Simulator and the others, uh, Playground, Tabletop Playground is the other one, uh, yep. require you to know how the world works. And then how to play yeah. the game within that world. That and every version is so different, right? Like some people script their games and other people is just like sitting down to the physical table. While I don't admit I like some of the scripted ones a lot. But like, for example, we were playing through Space Base and I think we tried four different. I don't remember if they're all on Tabletop Simulator, but we tried like four different mods or versions of it. And like one was just like playing Board Game Arena. It was fantastic. Another one like required you to do everything, including shuffling all the decks. I don't know. Like I, I just, I'm not willing to learn how to do it well enough to be proficient at it enough for it to be an enjoyable experience. As for virtual tabletops, I'm talking about RPG ones here that I have almost no experience with. So I can't say much about them except for the fact that one game I ran, whatever it was, five years ago, Math Guy Dave did the math for us last time. Far too long ago, the one game I ran online, we did hook up. I think it was Roll20. I don't even remember for sure, but I think it was one of those. And all I wanted to do was have icons for the characters that track two stats because there were two resources in the game. And I wanted to make a list of room names. And that was it. And I spent more time fiddling with it and trying to fix the numbers and like, wait, how do I decrement? How do I increment? That it was just like, we should just use the sheet of paper in front of everyone. Or I should have just tracked everything. Or could have had a notepad file open and it would have been easier. Now, I know you've done more online RPGs, but I don't know if you've done much on virtual tabletops. Now, yeah, virtual tabletops generally, at least for tactical purposes, require a lot of prep in advance and a good deal of technical knowledge much of the time. Now, while they can be invaluable, especially if you are using play-tested modules supplied by the publishers, mm. the GM still really needs to love those high geek levels of that sort of thing uh, 
especially if they're going to do anything themselves other than run, just running a published module. Uh, there's just a lot of interface to deal with. And, uh, you know, Roll20 in particular has notably had a history of problems with their online video chat. Oh, yeah. See, that, I think we did, we used... um we used, Discord. we used Discord because we Discord. knew that Roll20 had, yeah. <laughs> had those video chat problems. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't even try the online. And, and I got to say, Chris did call that out too, and I totally agree. For any time we've gamed online, we've always used some form of other chat, whether it's Discord or we were using Jitsi for a while. We've used Zoom, we've used Teams. I never trust the in-game chat to work. And like that's the same for playing Steam games too. Um, when we were playing, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the game. It's been so much. Yeah, Terraforming Mars, we were using it. Um, anything, even when you and I were playing Borderlands, we were still not using the in-game chat. Yep. Now, I, I admit it. I, there's a place for these things, right? I'm, I'm not trying to say they're bad or terrible. Um, Roger in the chat's already called out. They're great for prototyping, and they're great to try out like a Kickstarter before you can possibly get it. And I get it. There's reasons. But like in general, if I want to play a game online with my friends, they're not going to be my first choice. But the thing is, with all of these, it's most of it's just getting past that learning curve, right? I know lots of people who love and use them and all the power to all of you who do like I go for it. If you're, if you, if you've taken the time to be masterful with, with tabletop simulator, or if you've learned all the intricacies of, of uh, foundry to run your RPG and it just, the players just show up and do their thing and it works. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. But personally for me, I'm like for board games, we're going to stick to BGA if possible. Um, if in-person gaming isn't possible, so maybe, Someday someone will run something on one of those virtual tabletops and I'll take part and be like, oh, you know what? This actually is really cool and take the time to learn it. But like it almost feels like another whole aspect of the hobby, like, you know, getting into miniature games and then painting miniatures yourself are two different things. Well, getting into online games is one thing, but running online games and doing all that is a whole other hobby. Well, that's it for tonight. Even though we only highlighted one comment, we do appreciate every reply, mm -hmm. quote, share and comment we get. Please keep them coming. Well, the Gamma Trade Show is coming up quick. Yeah, especially by the time you hear this, it's even closer than it is for us now on Wednesday. Uh, less than a month away, Deanna and I will be heading down to Louisville, Kentucky for this Board Game Insider Trade Show. Uh, it's our first time attending Gamma, and I'm looking forward to meeting with publishers. And man, the publisher list, there, there, there's an early preview day. On, it's, it's a who's who. Many publishers we've worked with in the past, which I'm looking forward to, as well as many new ones which we'll be seeing for the first time. But another part of this is also to hook up with other content creators and Gamma members. Yes, we are Gamma members. So I, I this is going to be like, a, I think, a double the networking event that Origins was for us. I'm, I just, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it and I'm, I'm expecting big things. Well, I do recommend you, you work on your pronunciation of Louisville. And uh, if you are going to be at Gamma, let us know. <laughs> D and Mo have left their schedules open and would love to meet when time permits. Uh, this is the first time in Louisville and everyone else there. I don't think there'll be very many locals we'll be dealing with. So we should be all good. Did they actually pronounce it French down there? I assumed not. But no, it's Louisville. It's, it's Louisville. Yeah, it's basically yeah. Louisville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even say Trana. So <laughs> you can't get me to say Trana. I'm not going to say Louisville or whatever. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So, so far, like at this point, Wednesday night, two, three weeks before we go, uh, the only thing we have planned right now is one dinner engagement. So we don't really know what to expect because this is our first Gamma. Plus, I do know it's the first one ever in Louisville. Um, so I know not everyone else knows what's going on. But like, if there's anything 
that is happening that you think we'd like to attend, please let us know. Like if there's any after hours events going down, specific booths we need to check out, on-site events that shouldn't be missed, or even off-site events, I would love to have a little more knowledge going in than we have right now. Um, compared to like Gen Con and Origins, there's just not as much out there about it, um, which is because it's an insider show. And actually, this is one of the the few years they've invited media to come. So would love to have some heads up on what to expect and set up some plans. We're here to answer your gaming and game night questions. You can send your questions to us by emailing questions at tabletopbellhop.com or clicking on Ask the Bellhop over on our blog. While two-player games are the thing we get asked about the most often, a close second is games to play with kids that are fun for adults. This ranges from teachers looking for games for their classrooms, grandparents looking to entertain their grandchildren, gamer parents looking for games to enjoy with their own kids, and people hosting public play events looking to have a small selection of kids' games on hand just in case. Now to go with this, pretty much by chance, we've been playing more games aimed at kids lately. This is a mix of stuff we've gotten from publishers at cons, as well as stuff we've been sent in the mail. And what stuck out about this wave of modern family games we've been playing is just how solid, strategic, and tactical they are. Now, we mashed these ideas together to come up with a list of great family games that are just as good for adults as they are for kids. And now, this isn't to be confused with a previous topic we had that was about games that look like they're for kids but aren't. That was back on episode 207. Now, that talk featured games that were marketed at kids, or at least looked like kid games, or had a very children's, silly, cute theme that actually weren't good for playing with kids, or were absolutely terrible for playing with kids, and were actually very adult games that just happened to look um, like they might have been for kids. Tonight's the opposite end. We're, we're talking about the other end. Now, these are games, literally the publisher is like, these are for kids and families, and that are great for kids, but also end up being awesome for adults, whether by design or chance. Going even further back to episode 123, Playing Together, we talked about the best cooperative games for families, and while tonight's list may have some overlap, we're not just looking at cooperative games, and that episode is almost three years old at this point. And I actually went in and double-checked the old blog post, and there's actually one overlap which kind of blew me away. Uh, some of that, though, is because you can't find some of the games that were on that old list. So feel free to go check those out. Now, one of the things we are going to do tonight is make sure that we're only sharing games that are currently in print and easy to get at your friendly local game store or your favorite online game store. That is something I can't promise when you go back to those old lists. And I can tell you for a fact, <laughs> at least the one from episode 123, you won't be able to find every game on that list now. Well, tonight's list is going to feature games that are quick to get to the table, play relatively quickly, and have easy-to-remember rules, and in general, feature themes that will appeal to a younger audience. You want engaging and not overwhelming games that challenge while being compatible with potentially shorter attention span of younger players. So, as usual, this list is in no particular order, sort of, except for this first one, because I specifically wanted to start with a very specific game that's over my shoulder behind me here. And that is um, Rec Raiders from Kids Table Board Gaming. This is, uh, we're going to do a full review later on the show. And honestly, this game and the company that makes it is a big inspiration for this actual topic in the first place. It's It's been playing Rec Raiders and other games we've gotten recently, but that one really stuck out 
as this would be a cool topic to talk about that I, I we haven't covered in the past. Now, Rec Raiders itself is a quick-to-learn dice-drafting worker placement game all about sending divers down to shipwrecks to find treasures and shells. You're going to use the treasures to fill museum orders, as well as keeping some highlights for your own personal, personal vault. The shells can be traded in to help mitigate some of the randomness in the game, as well as used to purchase aquarium tanks for end-game scoring. This is a fun game that's really got some solid strategy and thinking required, but not so much that it will leave the game unplayed by the young'uns and enough randomness with a fun drop table to entertain the kids while still having a multi-part strategy for adults to explore. Now, what I want to note here is that this is the first game ever we have played and reviewed from Kids Table Board Gaming. And I put them first on the list because this game really stood out as being perfect for what we're talking about tonight. This is a perfect family weight game that even experienced gamers will enjoy. And the thing is, that's what KTBG is. That's what they're trying to do. That's what their mission statement is. It's what they want to do with all their games. And no, this episode is not sponsored by Kids Table Board Gaming or anything like that. Uh, it's, it's just happened that we discovered their game. I, and, and based on what we saw, Rec Raiders and other games we got to see at Origins, Games like Creature Comforts and uh, Fossilus. I, th I think that's how it's pronounced. Like Fossils with IS. Fossilus, I think. And I got to say, this has to be called out as a publisher that's currently, as far as I can tell, doing the best job of creating the types of games we're talking about tonight. The the fast food or food frenzy, that one looks really neat where you actually get a cleaver and cut up your dice. Oh, their games just look so great. And honestly, I got to say, we've only, we've only tried one. But check out Kids Table Board Games. Board not, gaming. Not surprisingly, a company called Kids Table would lean this way, but reading their mission statement really stands out. The games that they bought for their kids were too childish for the adults or too hard for the kids, rarely managed to challenge both sides of the table. So right. they set out to solve this by developing games well suited for the whole family. And from our chat room, we've already got a recommendation for Haunt the House from Kids KTBG. So, yeah, number one, Rec Raiders. And next up, we have a game we just reviewed last week, Mlem Space Agency from Rebel Studio, a sci-fi-themed push-your-luck dice game from Ring Your Nitzia about cats in space with some great in-the-box expansions to help find the right balance of thinkiness. Yeah, Mlem continues to be a big hit here. My kids dig it. Um, I'll be testing it out in public, hopefully, at a local gaming event coming up this Saturday. I, I plan on bringing this one out. I think it's going to be a, a hit for the casual game crowd. And I'd be shocked if people aren't looking to play it just based on the cover and the name of the game and the fact it's Cats in Space. Next, I have King Me from Ravensburger, which is kind of the opposite of Mlem. Because when I put Mlem out on the table, people are going to be like, oh, cat game, what's that? Well, when I put this on the table, everyone's going to be like, I don't know, they're just going to pass aside and look at other stuff. No one's going to want to play it because it looks like it's just a box of checkers. It looks like I am just putting down a themed set of checkers with fantasy art on the cover. And in a way, people are right because King Me really is just an updated version of checkers. But it's checkers converted to an area majority game where different areas of the board are going to score each round. And that's randomly generated by cards. The basic mechanics and the jumping is the same as checkers. But after that. This is actually almost a bit of a Euro game. This is an area control, area majority, sorry, not control. And it, it, the basic mechanics are simple enough to learn for kids, but it really shines when you get a couple experienced checker players facing off against each other. 
Notably, this is from Prospero Hall before they moved to and were taken in by Funko, which for me and I think Mo as well is really their strongest period and Mm. where we came to love their work. Yeah, it's King Me, Checkers, but so much more. Now, next up, we have a game that we're very happy that we could put on this list tonight, and that is Gokuku, which has been a huge hit at local public play events and has been enjoyed by local gamers from ages six to over 70. This is a fantastic dexterity game originally by Haba that has now come back in print thanks to Devere Games. Kind of like reverse pickup sticks where you take turns pulling sticks from a tin and then placing them on top of the tin, tin, building a nest to hold your eggs. The first player to play all of their eggs and then the chunky cuckoo meeple wins. Now, if you haven't seen this at your local FLGS yet, be sure to ask for it as it should be in stock everywhere by now. Yeah, I, everywhere I looked online had copies. This is a really good game, and I'm so glad people can get it again. I'm already calling it out in the chat, but I knew Tech would be here. Go Cuckoo is back in print, but it's from Devere Games now. So if you're calling up, you know, one of our local game stores, you, you got to have them look under Devere. D-E-V-I-R is the new publisher of the fantastic dexterity game Go Cuckoo. Huge hit with everyone I played it with. Now, one of the first kids games that a hobby gamer put in front of me with no kids around that kind of got me a side eye where I was like, well, what are you doing? Um, Was another hobby game. And this was Animal Upon Animal. And I didn't question that being put in front of me after the second or third turn. This is a classic stacking dexterity game. It's one of Havba's evergreen games that will always be in print and now exists in a wide variety of different additions, themes, and varieties. Gameplay in all of them is basically the same. Roll a die and place the matching animal, meeple, whatever shape onto the growing pile and try not to knock things over. Now, my kids love this one, and we'd still play it regularly if they hadn't lost the majority of the pieces as they were growing up. Well, this one certainly isn't a thinky one. And fans (laughs) of Dex games, and people who aren't fans of Dex games will run. (laughs) But this game has layers, and not just layers of animals. Now, I still really have a hard time keeping a uh, straight face while talking about this game, but it is what it is. And that's animal upon animal. Now sticking with dexterity games next up is drop it from cosmos, a game they say is great for eight plus, but the community lists as great for kids as young as five. You drop colored shapes into a plastic holder Tetris style, but make sure not to touch the same color or shape as the piece you just dropped. This physics game is a ton of fun with gamers of any age. Yeah, I love Drop It. Uh, Also fantastic for public play events. Um, Actually, the more I think about it, the more this entire list is probably great as a great list of games for an all-ages public play event, Uh, like we like to host here in Windsor. So we're going to have some overlap there as good family weight games are also good casual games to uh, woo in new and old gamers. Now, speaking of local events, at our last barbershop bar game night, which there were no kids there, there was a seven-player group playing through Camel Up from Eggert Spiel. This is a somewhat over-the-top, silly camel race slash betting game where the camels can land on top of each other. And then when one camel moves, it brings all the ones on top with it, which leads to some really unpredictable races and a lot of hilarity. Now, the new second printing of this even has what they call the crazy camel, which is one going the wrong direction. This one's always a hoot, always gets a lot of laughs, just as fun for kids as it is for adults. 
Now, this is one I've only ever played once at a New Year's Eve party years ago. And while fun, I must say it, it didn't at the time leave a lasting impression. Fair. But since you mentioned a game that mashes up racing and betting, I feel the need to bring up Downforce. Now, this is a game that did leave an impression and a good one. This is a modern reprint of the classic 1990s kids racing game Top Race. This comes from Restoration Games, who are known for taking people's favorite childhood games and updating them to appeal to more serious gamers. Now, the end result is similar to Kids Table Board Gaming, creating family, great family weight games that experienced gamers will enjoy just as much as the kids. And mm -hmm. Downforce is a fantastic example of this. Yeah, we found a copy of this one cheap and honestly didn't expect much from it, but it ended up being a great game and one that's been a big hit both with my kids and other local gamers. Next is a game I didn't even think of as a kid's game, but it makes total sense when I saw it come up on the Board Game Geek list of children's games. Because as I've admitted before, we do some research before we do these topics. And I always look to see what other people think. And that game is Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. This is a silly card game that's been around for quite some time, but I only personally discovered it last year. Now, it's a hand shedding game. You are trying to play your entire hand of cards by going... Taco, play a card. Cat, play a card. Taco, cat, goat, cheese, pizza. Everyone's throwing down cards as they say the words. As soon as the card matches what you're saying, so you throw down pizza when you said pizza, everyone tries to slap the pile. The last person to slap the pile takes all the cards. First player to lose all their cards wins. That's pretty much it. Now, to make things interesting, there's some other special cards like groundhogs and narwhals with their own special actions. You don't need to know that to get the gist. Um, This was a surprise hit for me. I did not think i would enjoy this too much i i for some reason it it sips better with me than happy salmon happy salmon required you running around tables at least this one you can sit in one place and play and i've been shocked by the number of local gamers i've introduced this game to who have now went and picked up copies and it is the kind of game that everyone is going to laugh just don't play with anyone with nails that are too sharp though being canadian we should probably be recommending taco puck maple syrup canoe fair now, speaking of games we don't think of as kids' games, despite playing with kids, next we have Pitch Car, which yeah. says ages 6-plus on the box. You don't get much more kids' game than that. Now, this is, of course, the wonderful flicking race game from Eagle Griffin Games that we like to set up for any big board game events. Now, while the base game is fun with its straights and curves, various expansions and fan-made pieces can lead to some truly wondrous tracks. Yeah, we love pitch car around here, and I've got to say now that 3D printers are a lot more common, the maker community for pitch car has some really fantastic stuff out there. Next, I'm going to call out one that is obviously a kid's game, marketed as a kid's game. It's from Haba, the kid's game company, and that is Rhino Hero. Now, as we have had this game for a long time, and it has been in our family for a long time, and as the kids get older and we played a number of times, um, we have found we're too good at the game. So this comes with a caveat of you may need more than one copy of the game because we've gotten too good at it and we run out of cards. Now, this is a cute game where you are building a skyscraper out of folded cards where players play roofs and then the next player has to put folded cards onto the roof. And it has some fun take that elements like forcing your opponent to move the little wooden rhino meeple up the growing wobbly tower. Now, there is a newer version of this called Rhino Hero Super Battle that I hear is more of a family weight game and is just as good, if not better. Now, our friends Kat and Tori strongly recommend this one, but I've yet to get Tori to bring it over to actually play it. So I haven't tried it myself. Rhino Hero is quite the silly game, but personally, in large part due to my coffee intake, I am utterly useless at it. 
I can't even get a second layer. So while I do enjoy, enjoy Dex games, this one in particular has eluded me completely. Now, another really silly game, something very toyetic, which you're probably going to have a hard time getting people to play at first is, at least until you've got them, got it set up, is Lupin Louie. Now, this game shouldn't be as fun as it is. And while it's not going to keep an experienced gamer occupied all night, we've yet to find anyone who didn't have fun playing around or two. And as for the kids, we've seen groups play it for hours and hours on end. Yes, we had it at an Extra Life event, and I think it got played for about six hours straight. Now, it was mostly some of the gamers' kids, but there were gamers in there every round, at least one, playing around with this game. Now, I have to give credit to a childhood friend of both of ours, John Salalula for introducing me to this game. I would have never thought a group of adults would have that much fun. What is what is basically a preschooler toy? Um, I, I, okay, maybe the heavy gamers won't like it, but you know what? I, I'm pretty sure if I sit Charles down there with his little flicker, he's he, he's he's not going to stop playing until someone wins. Like it is, it is so much fun. Now, next is another game from Rebel Studio. Now, this is the same company that brought us the first game on the list. Uh, sorry, second game on the list, Mlem. Uh, that is Chronicles of Avel. This is a cooperative tower defense game with a very fun bag-pulling magic item inventory system. Like, if you get a magic reward, you reach in this bag, and, and everything's unique shape, so you can kind of feel around and try to feel a sword and pull it out. And I don't remember it now because it's been a while since we played, but there's a rhyme you're supposed to say. My girls were obsessed with this rhyme. You were not allowed to pull your hand out of the bag without saying the rhyme before you got your magic item. Uh, we really enjoyed this one from start to finish. Um, kids love the evocative artwork, um, non-standard fantasy creatures. Um, we're going to call it out tonight. There was even a dry die drop table for naming your characters included. Like there's a lot of cool things going in here. Um, you get your character sheet, you get to draw on it. I, I, it's it's really neat game. Um, I noticed when I was doing research for this, it's currently ranked number six on board game geek for children's games. So it's, we're not the only ones who have been enjoying Chronicles of Avel. Now, I do have the first big box expansion right behind me um, on a stack, kind of off camera here. It is called New Adventures for Chronicles of Avel. And the whole family is looking forward to diving back into the Avel universe. Yeah, this one as a game really hit a lot of those hallmarks that KTBG was looking for in games. And I think puts Rebel Studios very much on the same sort of footing with a lot of their recent games. Yeah. Well, they do have some distinctly non-family games in their catalog as well. But that was Chronicles of Avel. Now, the last game I have for you tonight is Tapple from our friends at The Op. This is a game that Moe's girls play on a regular basis at school. It's been a game that's been in just about every classroom since, you know, grade four or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and one that the girls still enjoy. It's a game that gets together the whole family from the youngest to the oldest around the table. That's mm -hmm. Tapple, a fantastic word game. It can be fun to play by the rules in the box, but can also just be really fun to house rule, making up your own categories. Yeah, I'm so happy to finally own Tapple. Uh, it's a really solid game. Uh, this this is the one game. It, it's our new Garinto in a way, because well, Garinto is already a hobby game, but this is the one I'm like, no, no, hobby gamers. Like if, if you host publicly events, you do New Year's nights. If you ever have family over, um, grab a copy of Tapple. You just need a filler while you're waiting for the pizza to show up. It, it is a fantastic one. All right, my final game uh, and the last one for tonight's list. No, we will have some honorable mentions as usual is Castle Panic. Now, specifically the big box version, which we reviewed last year. Well, the original Castle Panic is a decent family weight tower defense game and, and nothing against it. 
but I know many gamers and gamer parents who do dig it, but it's just a little light. It's, it's, a, it's a little light for my taste. I, I'll play it now and then. But when you get the big box with all the expansions, you can tweak that so that it's that perfect level where the kids are still having fun and drawing monsters and laughing about what's happening. The parents are helping them make the detailed plans and managing their resources and so on. Now, the one caveat, of course, is that the Castle Panic Deluxe is not a cheap game. So if money is an issue, I would consider picking up the base game and the Crowns and Quests expansion to start. Then, if you're enjoying it with your family, add in the Wizard's Tower. And then if you still want more, you can add the other expansions. Now, this is another game where the dials you get in the box to help manage the time and difficulty are really what, you know, solidify it in this category. Yeah. You can age up the game and tweak it to suit your family's needs so flexibly with those uh, expansions. Well, now next we have a rather sad list of honorable mentions. First up, Ghost Fighting Treasure Hunters, especially with the Creepy Cellar expansion, which we had featured, planned to feature on the main list. Yep. But sadly, it looks like finally it is out of print. After coming out in 2013 with the expansion coming out five years later, keeping the game going, but it seems that that has finally died off. This is a fantastic cooperative game, very approachable for kids, but a ton of fun with a group of adults. We're just hoping it comes back into print at some point. Uh, next, Survive Escape from Atlantis. Well, that was a surprise. Ghost Fighting Treasure Hunters wasn't around anymore. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Hasbro game. It may come back at some point. I was shocked to know that Survive Escape from Atlantis is out of print. It's a classic game. It's been around since 1982. Uh, it's been kept in print for years by Stronghold Games. Before Terraforming Mars, this was Stronghold's evergreen game. This was their moneymaker. But as of today, at least, it looks like the game isn't as evergreen as I thought. It's not readily available anywhere right now. Now, this is a game about trying to escape from a sinking island with your little meeples trying to escape on boats and sharks that can attack them. And this is a super cutthroat game, but the kind of cutthroat that's just like silly and fun. And it's it's one that every time I've played it with kids, the kids take a obscene level of joy in, you know, eating their parents' meeples and their siblings' meeples and crashing their ships. And, and it, it's that, that very cutthroat take that, but it, with a silly theme that makes it not quite as nasty. Another game we had on the list until verifying its availability or sadly unavailability is Ice Cool. We're sorry yeah. to see that it does seem to be mm, maybe not dead at this point, but uh, it was a cool flicking dexterity game that featured little plastic penguins that you flicked around a school made out of boxes flipped upside down. It was a great game for gamers of all ages. And it seems like you may be still able to get it across Europe. But to the best of our knowledge, no one in North America is distributing it or Ice Cool 2 or Ice Cool Wizards. Now, there was supposed to be a follow-up to that. I did not do the due diligence to look it up. That was mecha-based and it was two-layered. I remember talking to them about reviewing it once it was finally published. I wonder what happened to that. I'm going to have to look into that. Um, and then just a question from the chat that I'm going to address right now. The Space Attack version is also, like, I, I don't know if they finally let the Survive um, license lapse. like. To be fair, Stronghold Games no longer exists, right? They they merged and are now Indie Game Studios. Sorry, I probably should have looked that one up. Um, but they are no longer a standalone company. A couple companies merged together, and that might have changed the licensing. But uh, no, Space Attack, which actually is, that's the version I have, is behind me, 
is also out of print. Now, finally, I want to call out one other one. You can see it right above Tapple on my shelf there. Um, and it is a series of games that were published by ELO. Now, ELO North America was shut down, and I think that's why we can't find these anymore. And that is the Tales and Games series. These are a series of games that were made to look like books on a bookshelf based on classic fairy tales and, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales and things like that. I was super bummed to find out the series is deluxe because these were really solid games. This is one of the an early indicator, like the first origins we went to. We got to see these games of that attempt by a published uh, established board game company trying to make kids games that are fun for the whole family that that even hobby gamers will enjoy. And I'm so sad to see this series gone. Now, I'm going to call out at least one game here. I'm going to call it the one that we still kept in our collection, even after multiple purges with the kids. And that is the Hare and the Tortoise. Uh, that one is a ton of fun card playing racing game where, of course, you know, the turtle doesn't move as fast as the the um, the, the hare. Sorry, <laughs> I'm drawing blank. It doesn't move as fast as the hare, but then the hare gets tired and so on. Um, kids kept playing this one long after the recommended age, and I'm very sad to see. Now, I did look it up. It doesn't even look like these are available in the EU either. So I'm not sure if Yellow just canceled the series or what happened there. Well, there you have 18 game recommendations from us in regards to kids' games that are just as fun for adults as they are for the kids. Well, now that you've heard our list, it's time for us to see what the lobby, our chat room here on Twitch, has been adding. And uh, the first ones I see are both Robot Turtles and Outfoxed. Both of those were on the old list when I said we have a list of cooperative kids' games that are just as engaging for adults. That was the original and I, I, my opinion has changed on that. So when we first published that, I totally agreed. But I have played out, Outfoxed is fun the first two or three times as an adult. After that, though, it's just not that engaging. Now, it's a neat deduction game with a little bit of roll and move in there where you're trying to figure out which of the, the people in a town have stolen a pie. And you're a fox trying to figure this out. And it has this really cool toy of where you put the the clue cards in and it tells you things like, yes, he had a hat or no, he didn't. Uh, it's well done. The kids enjoyed that way more than I did for way longer. The first few games were engaging. And and when I made that list, it was still new to us. And I was like, yeah, all over it. Um, sorry, what was the other one? It was outfoxed and robot turtles. Oh, robot turtles. Robot turtles is fantastic if you put the work into it. So robot turtles is a STEM programming game based on turtle graphics. Um, for anyone who's old enough to remember that, like Sean and I took turtle graphics in our grade school and it's, you know, move forward to turn left, move forward this. And you're trying to use your turtles to collect gems on the map. The It's from Think Fun. It was one of the early Kickstarter successes, but there is not enough scenarios in it. And it's very much dependent on the parents to come up with scenarios to challenge their kids. So out of the box, I don't think it's a good recommendation. But if you're into logo and program movement and you like making maps and you get part of the there's a fan community, become part of the fan community online. I think the Board Game Geek page has a bunch of people showing different scenarios. It can be still fun and engaging, but it requires a level of investment that for me made it drop off the list. Now, I didn't go delete it off the old list. I still think it's a valid recommendation. So uh, the chat room has brought to us uh, Iron Forest from Brain Games USA is the name. So it fulfilled in, or sorry, it, uh, it kickstarted in 2022. Yes. Uh, and I don't believe it actually has, uh, delivered yet. Okay. 
That is the follow up to Ice Cool. Yes. Just so for, yeah, for Iron Forest, which will, uh, which still as of well, as of January twenty fourth hadn't delivered. I don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's close, rough. But but yeah, it's uh, which is why I haven't heard about the game. I was know. excited about that one because mm-hmm. it had a catapult that launched your people on well, your. I don't know what you call them. Your Next. figures. They weren't <laughs> your, your 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 flickers. <laughs> into into like a top thing it looked neat it, it looked like more of a gamer's game than uh ice cool i was looking forward to it now roger mentions uh suro and legendary forests were good for seniors and probably kids too yeah i had suro is a fantastic game but it's extremely light um it, it's a great family weight game but to me I, I was looking for like hobby gamers like this so this would engage experienced gamer parents to play with their gamer kids suro can be played by anyone which is a highlight of the game and it plays high player counts and it's fantastic to have at public play events, but I have no interest in ever playing Suro again myself. Like it's, it's a neat game. It, it, what I like to do with Suro is have it at a public play event and have it set up in a corner. And that's the game you send everyone to when their table finishes up and they're waiting for other people to finish their games. And they play Suro long enough for the other table to finish. Then they go sit down and, and play a real game. Uh, Roger also mentions my farm shop is simple and uh, the difficulty can be scaled. Okay. Legendary Forest. That was the other one he mentioned. Fantastic game. I uh, played it at the CG realm. I enjoyed it. It was one of those, if I remember correctly, bingo games where everyone has the same input and you end up with different outputs. I think that's a strong recommendation. It's not one I've owned and I only played it once, but yeah, it totally belongs on the list. What was the one you just mentioned? Uh, my farm shop. My farm shop is not one I know. Let me just double check quick to see if it's something that once I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good recommendation. The artwork looks so familiar. Like, I think the same company has done other. All right. Yeah. Ages A plus. It's rated fairly well. That, that looks solid. I, I don't know it myself, but it looks like a good game. Very nice art iconography. It looks very clear. Anything else from the chat? Uh, yeah. We've got uh, Tech mentioning his kids love Downforce. So another another yep. vote for Downforce in there. And uh, Eggman Jr. saying Creature... T- Creature Comforts is mm-hmm. his favorite KTBG game with a simpler version for kids and an advanced version. It's great for more advanced gamers. And that's the real thing is when you've got those dials, any of these mm-hmm. games, that's what I think any good family weight game should have is either the dials to adjust the difficulty or right. enough of a breadth of options in the game. Like that's what Recreators does is it, it doesn't have dials, but because you've got your museum collection, your personal collection, and your aquariums that are all able to score for you. There's a whole lot that a grown-up can think about and try and, and manage, whereas the kid can just be making cool aquariums or mm-hmm. working on their museum pieces or maybe two of the three if they aren't ready for all three. Um, and having that flexibility is really one of the things that makes mm-hmm. that game such a great game for the all ages. No, oh, I agree. Yeah, Creature Comforts, I, we did a very short demo, like more of a, here, we're going to give you a two-minute overview of play at Origins, and it looked really good. What I didn't know is about the advanced rules, so that's good to know. Um, I think we only saw the simpler version. Now, that's that's like their take on, let's give you a, a worker placement game and resource management game, and I'm looking forward to that one. That, that is one that, um, honestly, we would have brought home from Origins if they hadn't sold out. So, uh, the other one I want to try, I had the name wrong earlier, is Diced Veggies. Diced veggies looks really neat where you have this set of dice that you like put through a tray and you put it down and it's like not a cube of dice because it's flat, but like, you know, a grid of dice. And then you actually have a little cleaver and you have to cut the dice and then slide off and then you use those. Um, 
Yes, it did win an Origins Award. I don't remember what for, but at the, we were at the Origins Awards and saw it. Yes, Creature Comforts won something and shortly thereafter was sold out or maybe was sold out before the award was given. Yeah, Diced Veggies is another one I want to check out. Fossilist looked fantastic. Uh, toyetic but neat and thematic where you're like moving bits of dirt and then eventually you get to the, the bottom and you use a little plunger and tweezers to pull out actual fossils. Well, not actual fossils. Plastic pieces shaped like fossils. That one looked really good. I, they honestly they kind of blew us away for for again gamers game like okay back in the day i used to play a lot of games workshop games and games workshop put out a series of games called the trollish the troll games and they were meant to keep your kids occupied while you played warhammer and i own um three out of the four that were published i actually reviewed um some of them on on the blog at one point um those were not games that would keep adults occupied right so it's so awesome to see that now people are publishing these games are like i'm trying to remember kids table board gaming the thing is like family games for serious gamers and i, I realize the gatekeeping connotations to that and I'm, I'm trying to it's not that i don't want to think about it so i'm failing in english um it's not that i want to think about it but I, I like what other language are you supposed to use right it's it's common parlance now to to say it that way and I love that they're doing that. Like there are more some gamers who are more experienced than others who are into heavier games and they're going to play games with their kids too. So it's nice to see that there's a company catering to that. And uh, Creature Comforts won the board games, social and light strategy category yeah. at Origins last year, which is oddly not on the, uh, the, on their board game geek listing. I had to go to the mm -hmm. Origins uh, awards to find that. All right. Now that we've heard from the chat, how about you folk listening at home or watching on YouTube? What are some kids games you played that you really enjoyed that you thought would be fun with your regular adult game group? Let us know by commenting, sending off an email to mo at tabletopbellhop.com or hitting me up on social media where I can be found everywhere as tabletop bellhop one word. And now a word from our sponsor, Grand Gamers Guild, who are excited to announce their first Kickstarter project of 2024, Booba Kiki, from the mind of John Schaefer who fans of the show should recognize as the designer of the Holiday Hijinks series of games. Booba Kiki uses a real-world psychological concept to facilitate gameplay. Like, let's say I asked you, what does a booba look like? Okay, what's a kiki look like? Well, the world over, 90% of people would say that a booba is a rounded shape and a kiki is a spiky shape, regardless of language or culture. Booba Kiki takes the hive mind mechanic of just one and the storytelling scenarios of the crew and mashes them into a fun communication party game featuring six mini campaigns of ever-increasing difficulty. I, I'm sold. Seriously. Like, I realize Mark's the sponsor and everything here, but like that, the entire concept has fascinated me. Um, I, I wasted an entire afternoon down a booba kiki rabbit hole on the internet. The, the one we got this announcement from Mark, here's your ad copy, right? And I'm like, oh, I got to look into this. This looks really neat. Well, if you're like Mo, you can sign up for a launch notification over on Kickstarter. We're going to drop a link in both the chat room and the show notes as well. And while it's not going to help you out on the Kickstarter, you can always head to grandgamersguild.com. And if you decide to go shopping and pick up some awesome games like Garinto, uh, you can save 10% by using our code bellhop, B-E-L-L-H-O-P. Or, you know, grab one of Jonathan's other games in the Holiday Hijinx series. Uh, the newest one, the Easter one, I think is available for pre-order now. Well, join us as we dive into Rec Raiders. 
an engaging family weight board game from KTBG, who we have to thank for providing us with a review copy. So Rec Raiders is the result of a collaboration between Tim W.K. Brown and Josh Capel. Features artwork from Apolline Etienne and was published back in 2019 by Kids Table Board Gaming. Kids Table Board Gaming, or KTBG, is a company that was created specifically to develop, create, and publish family games for serious gamers. They formed after finding it difficult to find existing kids' games that were also engaging and deep enough for adult gamers to enjoy. Did they succeed with Rec Raiders? Stay tuned to find out. Rec Raiders plays one to five players with a sweet spot at four. While the game lists the playtime as 45 minutes, we played game that quick. It is very dependent on the thinking time of the players. Uh, for example, I have one kid who loves to analyze every single option before making a move in any game she plays. And when we play with her, our games usually top an hour. KTBG lists this game as ages 10 plus, but we could see some younger kids being able to play as well. They just might need a little bit more help. Now, in Rec Raiders, players control a team of treasure hunters who are exploring four pirate shipwrecks in a shallow lagoon. Your divers will recover sunken treasure and shiny seashells, which you will use to create displays and stunning aquariums for the local museum, and probably save a few key items for your own personal vault as well. Now, all of this starts with a fun die drop table using the top of the box and a dice drafting worker placement system where every time you dive, you bring any divers next to you at the same wreck down with you. So you have to watch to not help out your opponents more than you help yourself. We'll get a look at the very cool die drop table and the other high-end components through our Rec Raiders unboxing video on YouTube. Yeah, I was so happy to see someone use a die drop table again. I haven't really seen that in a number of years. And it brought back some fond memories of some classic games workshop games I own. Now, in regards to that table, I did note in the video, I was a little confused on how it worked when you're making score on the same box top. One play of the game cleared that up. I probably should have realized it, but you don't score anything until the very end of the game. So look right past that confusion during the unboxing video, because up until then, the cute crab scoring tokens just sit in front of you to let you know what color you're playing. Now, the component quality in Rec Raiders is great. You get the cute crabs, cool looking diver minis. Thick cardboard player boards with some great reminder iconography on them. Thick tile aquarium pieces in three different shapes for top, bottom, and middle. Very clear cards and a slew of treasure tiles. The rule book's excellent and thin enough that you can probably get them read and be ready to play your first game while the other players punch out the cardboard. That's actually what we did and it worked. Well, since we're talking rule books, let's move into an overview of play. Note this is not intended as a full rules teach. We may skip over some small idiosyncrasies and details for the sake of brevity. So set up the playing area as described in the rule book with treasure tiles sorted by type and put next to each wreck, seashells up near the beach, three aquarium types sorted, shuffled, and an initial market on display, exhibit cards revealed equal to the number of players plus one. Each player then grabs a player mat, a crab marker, and a number of dyers, divers, dyers, whoa, a crab marker and a number of divers based on the player count. Now at the start of each round, dice are tossed into the box top. The dice are then transferred to the reef board without changing their values based on where they landed, either on or touching one of the three seashell types or in the open sea. The number of dice used is based on the player count. So starting with the first player, the start player, which passes clockwise after each round, players will draft one die, then use it to place or move one diver. 
Divers can be placed at one of the four shipwrecks or on the beach. If the numbered space you want is already taken, but an opponent's diver is there, you can bump them. Note you can't bump your own. Divers bumped from a wreck move to the beach space of the same number and collect the cells shown. Divers bumped from the beach return to the owning player. Once any bumping is done, players collect their treasure. Divers just placed on the beach collect the two seashells shown in their spot. Divers on a wreck get to collect one treasure token from the wreck they're at. In addition to this, any divers of any player, your own or your opponents, that are next to the just-placed diver also get to dive and collect their own treasure tiles. Shells collected go into a pool to be spent later. More about shells in a bit. Whereas treasure has to be placed on your player board in one of two spots. On the left of your board, you have room for three museum displays. Treasures placed here have to be placed left to right in the order they're acquired, but each treasure claim could go into a different of the three displays. Now, the goal here is you're trying to match the face-up exhibit cards. On the right side, you have your vault. Here, treasure must be stacked with a base on the bottom row and new treasures going next to or above ones already placed. The main goal when placing these is to make rows of the same treasure category, that's color, with a bonus earned for all of the type, different types of treasure images of each color by the end of the game. Now, once everyone's placed their newly gained treasure, the active player can claim one or more exhibit cards. Each of these shows a complete museum display. Now, a card can be plain claimed if a player has a matching set of treasure tiles with a bonus awarded if the tiles are in the exact same order as shown on the card. It's worth reminding first-time players, even some people who have played before, that having the right treasure in order is not required to claim the card, only to get the bonus, as we've seen players forget this sometimes mid-game. Now, some exhibits also have room for decorations. If one of these spots is on the card you've just finished and you have the appropriate shell, you can discard the shell to claim the bonus. Now, the bonuses include getting to draw a free treasure tile from any wreck for a scallop or a bonus two points at the end of the game for a conch. The last thing on the active player can do is claim an aquarium piece by paying its cost in shells. Each tank must start with a bottom and you can have any number of bottoms. Each bottom can then have any number of middle tiles stacked on top of it, but each aquarium can only have one top. Each bottom and middle gives you a fixed amount of points. The tops award bonus points based on what is in that completed aquarium. Note you can only buy one aquarium piece per turn. Once the active player's turn ends, you check to see if the game ends. This is based on the player count and the number of exhibits that have been completed. If the active player has met or exceeded that number, every other player gets one more turn. Well, now it's time to get back to those seashells. They come in three different types. Besides being used to buy aquarium pieces and conchs and scallops being able to be used when claiming some exhibits, each shell can also be spent to help mitigate some of the randomness in recreators. So when drafting a die from the reef, you can discard a conch to roll the die up or down by one pip. Note, you can't roll over from a 6 to a 1 or the other way around. When taking a treasure tile due to placing a diver on a wreck on your turn, you can spend a scallop to take a second treasure tile. When claiming an exhibit, you can place a starfish on top of one of the treasures in your display to have it count as any type of treasure you want, which is great for getting that perfect order bonus. You can also discard starfish to remove a treasure from the end of one of your displays. This is useful if you're aiming for an exhibit that gets drafted by another player. At the end of the game, players will get points for each of their exhibit cards, for the treasures in their vault, and their aquariums. 
player with the most points wins, with ties decided by most leftover treasures and then most leftover shells. Now, Rec Raiders also includes rules for solo play, which has you set up the game as if you were going to play two players using all six dice and then 18 rival diver uh, meeples. Each turn, you're going to take three actions, draft three of the dice, and then the rivals are going to take three actions based on the dice that are left. Now, note, when playing this way, you can only place your divers on wrecks, never on the beach. Rival actions are based on the dice left after you have taken your three turns. Rivals are placed onto empty spaces on the wrecks first, only bumping if they have to. If you get bumped to the beach, you do get shells. Any treasures you collect on a rival turn must go to your vault, not your displays. Any treasure collected by a rival is discarded. Now, after the rivals go, you get another chance to buy aquariums, this time any number, which breaks the basic rules. The game ends when your vault's full, when you've claimed six or more exhibits, when a wreck runs out of treasure, all six beach spots are filled, or you run out of rival minis. Solo scoring is the same as the core game. There's a chart in the book so you can find out how well you did. So Rec Raiders is our first experience with kids table board gaming. And I've got to say, I have been very impressed. Now, when I met with them and agreed to work with them, they recommended we start with Rec Raiders. Now, the reason we were given at the time is that they feel this is their biggest hidden gem game. They think it's one of their best games they've published to date. It just didn't get a lot of hype due to the fact of when it was released, which was at the end of 2019. Now, I'll be honest, I had never heard of them as a company until we ran into them in Origins, but they made an amazing first impression. Now, the goal of KTBG is to make games that are great for kids, but also challenging enough to keep hobby gamers engaged. And I've got to say they nailed it with Recreators. Both of my girls enjoy this game. Now, my youngest, she loves the theme and the fantastic artwork and, and the diving and the working together. Now, my oldest is more of a strategy gamer, and she loves the long-term planning and tactical nature of the game, and is so far the only player I played with to get a perfect score with her vault. Now, my wife and I both enjoy it quite a bit, and it's worth noting that my wife is usually into heavier games than Steffenfeld Point Salad, so the fact that it won her over at all is impressive. I've even introduced Rec Raiders to a few of the local heavy gamers, and they've enjoyed it as much as the kids. Yeah, this game works because it features a number of simple enough paths for scoring individually, but they all interact, if lightly, to give the advanced player problems to think about and work out scoring opportunities on. While easy enough to just do for those who are not yet that advanced planning level. Yeah, the theme and artwork are also part of what makes Rec Raiders work. The iconography is excellent, some of the best I've seen. It's very clear and easy to see from across the table for what you need to see. Little fiddly details, though, like what each shell type does, is shown instead upon the main board on each player's personal board. And even the way you remove dice from the die drop table, the top of the, the box, and place them on the reef is designed with ease of use and visibility in mind. Like, I think someone at KTBG has a firm grasp of the zones of play that we've talked about on previous episodes. While it's certainly possible this might be an exception, I highly doubt it. I think this company has a goal for their games and is sticking to it. And I applaud that. This is a market that wasn't being fulfilled, aside from a few little games here and there from various publishers, often unintentionally. Yeah, Rat Creators also features one of my favorite styles of mechanics. I don't know if there's a term for this. If there is, uh, someone let me know. This is the system where when you do something, other players may also get something. I dig games where I have to weigh out 
what I get for taking an action versus how much I may be helping my opponents. Uh, as a great example of a game that's all about this is Lanterns. And I love seeing that mechanic here again. Which is another great family feature. That idea of cooperation, willingly or not, is <laughs> a great learning tool as well as a fun mechanic. Now, I'm also a big fan of die drop tables. Um, one of the highlights of it in Rack Creators, though, and, and, and I think this is by design, is it's a it's a boom. It's the start of a new round. It's it's a something's happening. It's a get ready, right? It's it's this bit of tension that starts every round of the game because of the die drop table. Everyone gets it leaning in and everyone's watching to see what comes up. Now, it could be they're looking for a specific number or maybe they're hoping to get a certain type of shell to get that last aquarium piece or they just need a starfish so they can claim this card. But everyone's watching that dry drop every time. Yeah, though overly vigorous dice dropping can lead to bounce out. So yeah. you do need to find that middle ground or you'll be picking dice up off the floor regularly. Now, another thing I dig about Rec Raiders is that it's competitive and highly interactive without really getting nasty. Yes, players can bump other people's players. You can bump other divers. But when that happens, the bumped player gets something out of it. Now, that might just be having their diver back so they don't have to move one of their other spots off, off a spot they want. And they get to use that one or they're getting shells. And while it can kind of stink if someone takes that one aquarium piece you really wanted or completes that exhibit you were going to claim, there are always other exhibits and other tiles to draft. We did find the more experienced the players were, the nastier it got. When play shifts from trying to get what you want to making sure someone else doesn't get something that's going to score them a lot of points. Like, don't let mom get that aquarium top has been said more than once at my table. And that's to be expected. In fact, I think that's a benefit of the game as it can grow with the players rather than players growing out of it. Now, one thing to watch for here, which will concern some players and groups, is a high level of randomness in Recreators. There's dice. That's random. There's treasure tiles that are, are shuffled. That's random. The exhibit cards is a deck of cards that's shuffled. So which ones comes up adds more randomness. There's randomness in the aquarium pieces. There's just randomness kind of left, right, and everywhere here. Now, while there are some ways to mitigate this, mainly from the seashell abilities, they come at the cost of spending the shells to help with your die rolls and not using them to buy, say, aquarium pieces or to claim exhibit bonuses. So I don't know if their most effective use is to modify the dice. Now, one thing this randomness does, which we often see in kids' games and has been use, used as a balancing mechanic for years um, when looking at kids' games, is leveling the playing field between players of different experience levels. Right. You really don't want a perfect knowledge, purely skill-based game for most family game nights. It's often the case that someone will get left out by this style. Yeah. And while a bit of randomness helps smooth over differences in ability and knowledge. Now, another thing I would have liked to have seen, this this is more of a, a wish list item, is a box insert to sort everything in Rec Creators. Uh, something just to keep everything sorted and make it a little quicker to set up. Uh, bonus points if it included removable trays for the treasure tiles. Like, give me four little rec trays to put out in the middle of the board. And maybe something to sort the shells. That'd be nice. But I fully understand this would increase the cost of the game. And I think keeping it cost um, a low cost is probably more important than this. So I'd fully understand why there wasn't one, but I would have liked it. Now, these are all things now that families can bling out on their own easily enough, especially with the growing number of 3D printers in homes. Overall, I'm sure you can tell I am very impressed by Rec Raiders and by Kids Table Board Gaming. Uh, I've now played it a number of times with my kids. I've played it with adults and with a mix of both kids and adults. 
actually at this point i have a hard time even thinking of it as a kid's game like to me it's just it's a midi medium weight dice drafting worker placement game with a great theme some really cool mechanics and it's a lot of fun yeah my kids dig it so so do our group's heavy gamers the game length actually makes it work just as well as a thinky filler for those heavy gamers as well as a good family night game for us that said, there is a pretty high level of randomness here, so that will turn off some groups and some gamers. Now, while the theme to me is a bit meh, I'm not a fan of the just the diving in the water concepts. That <laughs> it still works excellently for a family game. It is playful, it's colorful, and the decorations like the aquariums are great to help keep those younger kids interested in the game. Now, while my own high school kids would have fun, I doubt they'd really take to it and, and be eager to come back to it. But five or more years ago, I think they would have played it to death. Now, another thing that I think needs to be brought up and is a, is a bit of a concern is this is a competitive game. I know many families and some gaming groups that don't like any direct competition in their games. And Rec Raiders has both that direct competition and some indirect conflict in the form of taking things other players may want or need for their plans. While I personally don't feel it ever gets nasty, I fully understand groups who will want to avoid any form of conflict at the table, especially when playing with kids. Well, with that, we come to the end of our review of Rec Raiders from KTBG, who we think nailed their mission of creating a competitive kids game that's just as fun as engaging for adults as it is enjoyable for younger audiences. So if you tried any of kids table board gaming's games, what do you think we should check out next? You think the an, an engine building worker placement game like Creature Comforts would be a good fit for us? Or maybe Fossilis, a very toyetic game about digging for fossils? Something else? Diced Veggies? Do you think that would work good for us? Let us know in the comments, and then maybe we'll reach out and see what we can work out. Or better yet, join us on the Tabletop Bellhop Discord, which can be found at discord.tabletopbellhop.com. Welcome to our look at Zensu a perfect information abstract strategy game that it seems no one has heard of. We hope to fix that, but first, we have to thank Outset Media for providing us with a review copy of this game. Zensu was designed by Raymond Hazeman, who was and was originally published by Cheatwell Games. Now, here in North America, it's actually published by Canadian distributor Outset Media. Now, this is a two-player-only chess-like abstract strategy game with super simple rules. Like, it's pretty much the epitome of simple to learn, difficult to master. It's that difficult to master part that makes us question why Board Game Geek has this listed as a children's game. While Outset Media has this listed as ages 8+, plus, they at least call it a family game. Yeah. Sure, any kid can learn to play chess, but does that make it a kid's game? To us, this should be grouped with games like Go, Othello, Chess, and Checkers, and not with Candyland and Snakes and Ladders. Now, Zensu is played on a 6x9 board with each player starting with two rows of pieces. The goal is to get one of those pieces to the opposite end of the board. There are only two different ways pieces move, and these are listed right on the wooden tiles. Each player has an equal amount of both piece types. In this game, capturing is done by both jumping over or landing on the opponent's pieces. While there isn't a lot to see, what's there is pretty nice. So I encourage you to go check out our Zensu unboxing video on YouTube. Now, what you'll see there, besides me thinking the board is only 7x6 due to the art in the end rows, is the nice small board. Perfect for coffee shop table. 24 wooden playing pieces and a very clear rule book sheet, I guess rule sheet, 
It's like a folded sheet. Uh, it's only three pages worth of rules. Now, the quality of the wood pieces is very nice. They're nice and thick, and they just feel good in your hands. And they have a lacquered finish that should prevent any information by being rubbed off or getting scratched over time. Now, the board is functional, and it works perfectly fine, but would have been much cooler and more portable and spill-resistant if it had been a neoprene mat. Zensu claims it's easy to learn, so here we go. First, grab one tile of each color, mix them up, and hold them out, one in each hand, and have your opponent choose a hand. That set your, sets your player's color. Each player takes the tiles in that color and sets up their side of the board with a row of six tiles with a two at the top in the back row and a row of six tiles with a one at the top in the front row of that. The green player gets the first move. Each turn, the active player will choose one piece to move it and move it in any orthogonal direction. That's up, down, left, or right. No diagonals. You're going to move it exactly the number of spaces shown on the tile for that direction. This movement must end in an open space or on a space occupied by an opponent. Players can jump over their own tiles. Any tiles landed on and any opponent's tiles jumped over are captured and removed from the board. The first player to land a piece on the opposite end of the opponent's back row wins the game. That's it. That's all there is to Zensu. Of course, the fun comes from the way the two different tiles in the game move. Mm -hmm. Each tile moves one, two, three, or four spaces with each number assigned to a different direction. Your front row tiles have the one facing your opponent, with the other numbers going clockwise around the tile, so two is left, three is back, and four is right. Your back row tiles are similar, but forward is two, which means left is three, back four, and right one. Since this is printed right on every tile, you don't even have to remember that. While this sounds simple enough, and really mechanically that's it, it is that simple. It's figuring out what to do with these tiles that is the fun of Zensu. For experienced abstract strategy game players, especially those used to chess or used to drafts or checkers, you're going to have to channel your inner Jedi here and unlearn what you have learned. The hardest part about the game really is focusing. It's all too easy to think you know where all your and your opponent's pieces can move to, only to miss that one piece that was a two and not a one, and that mistake can lead to a chain of events like opening yourself up to a multi-jump in checkers. Yeah, the biggest thing I struggle with, even after quite a few plays, um, we're talking 10 plays here, is remembering that captures are both by landing on a tile and jumping over it. Years of chess playing has the first part firmly stuck in my brain. I look at the tiles and I know where every tile can land and the spot they're going to land on. And I'm constantly watching for where pieces are going to land and what's guarded and what's not. But I often forget that second part where you can lose a piece by being jumped. I don't know how many times I've moved a one up in front of a forward two and then the forward two jumped over me. And I was like, oh, dang it. Now, Dan, on the other hand, who so far hasn't lost a game often forgets that the pieces can jump backwards. Not necessarily that they can move, but they can also capture when going backwards. It's just somehow not intuitive. While I went into my first game, knowing some of the pitfalls, we all noted the moment I saw my mistake with an audible noise. And from there, it was a matter of time till D finished me off. Although I will say I was proud of how well I held on, though. No, oh, I totally agree. You did a great job compared to how I've been playing. Note, I, I am not very good at this game, it seems. Or Deanna is extremely good at this game. That's probably even more likely than me not being good at it. We need, I need to challenge the younger kids, maybe, to feel better about myself. Yeah, like a perfect move in this game can capture four opponent's pieces in one move. Like, that's just, no other abstract strategy has that. Um, honestly, I don't have much more to say about Zensu, right? It's, it's a perfect information, abstract strategy game. 
It's all about outthinking, outplanning, and outmaneuvering your opponent. I think it's brilliantly designed, and it gives me that thinky chess-like feel and a nice short game length. So far, I have never sat down and played one game of Zensu. It's always been at least a best two out of three, if not more. The one thing I haven't personally played it enough to say is that if it's always going to be that first mistake that ends it, at least with two reasonably accomplished abstract players. With younger players, less experienced with abstracts, they might have more back and forth as they could be missing some of those opportunities. I'll know in many of the game note that in many of the games I play with Deanna, we both made mistakes. It wasn't always one move and it's over. I think the thing was your mistake was so late in the game that it was over. Now, one other thing I do dig about this game is the size. This is the perfect size for coffee shop play, which is something my wife and I love. We played this at a few different cafes. Now we played at a bar, we played at a brewery, and we even once played at a restaurant while waiting for food. Though, as noted above, I would have loved to have a neoprene mat instead of that board just to make the game a little bit more portable, you know, fit in a purse. Also be more food and beverage proof because if we do bring it out somewhere with food, if something spills, you can easily wipe it up. I am strongly considering getting something third party printed up for this board. Now, the board size, again, is notable here as it's not a 64 square chessboard. Mm -hmm. This is vital for how the pieces move side to side. There were a number of times I thought I had a great move only to notice that I was going to be short by just one space in that side to side direction. Yeah, all the moves in this game, you have to move the full amount. It's not move up to four left. It's move four left. Now, one thing that actually baffles me about this game, and this is, I, I, I don't know if it's anything against Outset Media or the original, the original publisher, but the, there is no hype about this game. No one is talking about this game. This game came out two years ago. There are only 18 ratings on BoardGameGeek for this game. 18 is ridiculously small. You get more ratings on an unpublished Kickstarter game than you do on this game that's been out on the market for two years. The North American publisher, Outset Media, isn't even listed on the game's page. And I've honestly never heard another content creator even mention this game. Like, this is a really solid abstract strategy game, and it seems to have been completely buried by bigger, flashier games. And I think that's a shame. If I were the publisher, I would fight to get this game on Board Game Arena. Because yeah. while it seems odd to think about giving away for free a game that you're having trouble selling, I think it is the sort of game that people would buy if they had experienced it. Now, it's also possible lots and lots of people are picking this game up and whenever it's shown off on a con, they sell out. It just it's not a hyped game. It's just people aren't talking about it like chess. No one talks about, oh, I bought a new copy of Backgammon on the weekend and I loved it. Maybe that's all it is. It's just the, the target market is a different group of gamers. I don't know what it is. But anyway, if you dig abstract strategy games at all, just pick up Zensu. I don't think it's going to disappoint you. This game gives me everything I want in a quick playing abstract game and perfectly embodies the concept of easy-to-learn, difficult-to-master. If you're a bar or a restaurant that has a few games lying around, I would strongly look at this one, despite mm -hmm. being called a kid's game. I think it's perfect for a couple of people sitting with drinks and relaxing, which is why we called it out on our date night list. Now, if you don't like abstract strategy games, yeah, it's not going to be for you, right? That's what this is. This is a perfect information abstract strategy game that's all about outplaying your opponent. And unlike some modern abstract games we reviewed recently, like, say, Boop, there's no cute theme here to draw you in. Zensu is very much in your face with what it is and what it's about. And I can't really see it converting anyone to abstract strategy games as a genre. 
Short and simple, just like the game, that's all we have to say about Zensu, a game that seems to have somehow avoided everyone's <laughs> attention. Hopefully this review has helped to change that even just a bit. Now, I noticed on uh, the Board Game Geek page, it says something about combining stealth. Maybe the stealth is that the game doesn't get noticed because there's not a lot of stealth in the actual game. What's a game you played recently that deserves a lot more attention than it's been given? Let us know about it in the comments or on our Discord, and maybe we'll give it a look and help spread the word. If you enjoyed this review and like hearing about hidden gem games you may have missed, consider keeping us caffeinated and motivated by buying us a coffee at ko-fi slash tabletopbag.com slash tabletopbellhop. And now in the Bellhop's Tabletop, we look back at the games we played since last episode, and it's gonna be a lot. Yeah, not only has it been two weeks since we were last here, but also 2024 has been awesome for gaming, and I love it. We're getting in tons of gameplay. I hope I'm not cursing it, but like I'm at 30, 16 games played in February already, like this month. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, it's been it's been great. And I actually am just realizing right now I didn't even record the game we played on Sunday. So oh. I, I'm missing one. I got I to gotta punch that into my BG one. stats. Missing one of the games. Sean missing BG stats is rare. I miss them every now and then. I know I do. <laughs> or sometimes I log, like I'll log Zensu. We were just talking about Zensu. I'll log one play, but I played like each six times in a row. But I just like log it as one play experience. Right. Anyway. Now, a lot of the games that hit the table recently are completely new to us, which is great. Um, it is awesome. I have an Expel spreadsheet where I track it, and I'm watching that pile of shame number go down, uh, which is long overdue. And it's so far, like maybe it's just our new gym membership still. As we talked about at the end of the last year, I wanted to get more of these other games to the table that we haven't, and it's working. Now, hopefully the gym membership, we don't give up on it after February, but so far it's working, so I'm happy with that. So a great example of this was a three-player game of the game Holotype. This I played with Genevieve, my youngest daughter, and Deanna, my wife, that we played to celebrate a PA day. I, I, Jen had the day off that her sister didn't have, and we wanted to do something a little special. And Jen is a huge fan of dinosaurs, right? So we thought this would be a great game to introduce her to, especially after reading the rules and realizing, um, honestly, just how simple the game is. Now, this is a lighter Easier to learn Euro. Like it is a Euro. There, there's some some definite Euro elements here, but definitely lighter about discovering dinosaurs and publishing papers. Now, a holotype is when someone d d figures out that there's a new species, something that hadn't been put out before. They then put out this paper called a holotype that says, hey, look, I found a new type of dinosaur. That's what this game's all about. Now, I was going to totally put this on tonight's list of kids games that are great for adults because it is. Except the publisher has it listed as age 14 plus. Now, I realize it's probably for legal reasons, so they didn't have to pay for testing. And so, you know, kids don't swallow the cubes. But I got to say, if I was a grade school teacher um, teaching dinos for kids, say, age eight, maybe 10, maybe eight, I'd want this game in my classroom. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll get a chance to play. I'll get a chance to play that as well before the uh, the review happens. Yeah, I was hoping to have you here this weekend. I didn't realize you're out of town. Now, Holotype is a worker placement game with a neat placement role where you have an archaeologist, you have an assistant at the start of the game. Partway through the game, you can unlock a grad student if you publish enough papers. Now, each piece can bump the ones at the same level or lower. So a grad student can bump a grad student or assistant, but not an archaeologist, and so on. Um, in addition, the assistants aren't really as good as the other places. So the if you use a grad student or archaeologist, you get more. 
Now, there aren't a lot of spots. This is not like a big sprawling worker placement game. The, your only real options are go digging for fossils, which has a nice random element to it that I think is thematic. Collecting new specimen cards, which reminds me of Race for the Galaxy because it's one of those, you know, draw three, keep two. Uh, do research at the library, which just earns you research cubes. Trade with the museum, and the museum will have various fossils and stuff you can trade for, and you can sell your fossils for more research um, cubes or publish a paper. Now, each holotype paper is paid for in those fossil cubes of the appropriate time period. There's three different time periods the game covers and research cubes. Now, you're going to do all of this while still trying to accomplish hidden private goals and claim public first come, first serve style goals. So there's a lot going on, but it seems like it's pretty straightforward and easy to understand, uh, especially Again, if you're looking to get those younger kids uh, who already are or uh, you'd like to be involved in dinosaurs and understanding a little bit about this science, like the yep. the idea of archaeologists, research assistants and, uh, you know, Ph.D. students is yep. is a is a really important sort of real world how the world works lesson. Yep. No, I agree. I don't know quite how educational I call it, but it's definitely more educational than many other games I've played. And then thematically, it's just well done. Um, the artwork is is fantastic. It's, it is great, um, though it's all no feathers on these dinosaurs. I know that's a topic of debate. Um, these are all featherless dinosaurs. Uh, super quick playing, fast player turns, just enough to keep you engaged the whole time. Like, I think you're going to really dig this one. Excellent. Next up, many, many plays of Star Trek Super Skill Pinball, um, starting off with Deanna and I playing it. Now... We did take a short two-night trip out of town um, last weekend, and the game hit the table the most out of everything we played. Uh, we played it at restaurants. We played it at coffee shops. We played it at breweries. That was the game we played the most the entire weekend. And honestly, we were hooked after our first partial game at Kava. Um, sat down to play it, and, and it took a little longer. That was that was the one shock with this game. Um, overall, super impressed by the way it captures the feel of a physical pinball machine and also the cool Star Trek thematic tie-ins. Um, we played the base Starfleet Academy board on our trip, which also included um, Mo doing a Mo thing of inviting a couple strangers to join in and learn the game with us. So I, I got to play Bellhop out in Kingsville and got a couple Bandit Gooseberry regulars into this game. Um, which also proved that you don't have to know anything about pinball or Star Trek to intrude the game. Enjoy the game. Later tried the triple board on Sunday at Brenda's um, and broke it out this weekend to show off to Sean. Again, we played the Starfleet Academy board so Sean could get introduced to the game with the, the simplest version. And while there are a couple little things that are sort of like, well, you know, if I was playing a real pinball game, I'd be able to do this. Um, yeah. For the most part, it what they've done it makes a lot of logical sense. Uh, I think if they were to make the boards longer, they might be able to allow some of that more physical stuff. But because they're keeping it nice and tight and compact and there's only 2D6 yeah. to choose from, uh, they've gone with the best they could uh, and, and made it for a really enjoyable game. Now, again, I've only played that first intro game, but it was really fun. There's a lot of thought process into, all right, which way am I going to go? Which dice am I going to use up first? And things like that. Uh, And there's the, oh my God, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I chose that too early in the game moment. (laughs) Yes. Anyone who knows the game knows exactly what you're talking about. And that was a fun moment when I was with Deanna because I I knew the trick. 
figured out the trick and Deanna did not. And she's like, how, how? And I wouldn't tell her at first. So that was kind of fun. I, my only complaint about the game, and it's, it's not really a complaint. It's another one of those missed expectations is I expected more of a rapid fire, quick party game. And this is not, this is a thinkier game than you would expect. And it's not quite as rapid fire as I'd want. Um, definitely last way longer than I ever do in a real pinball game. But you're looking like like an hour play time. Not this is not a 15 minute filler, which I somewhat thought it might be. I was actually really interested because again, you know, we are not solo game players. We've talked about it many times. We try them and we never really get to them. Yeah. I totally felt like I wanted to take this home and play it, like it, yeah. like on my own as a solo game. Because there's no, there, I mean, I guess apparently some on some of the other boards there are, but on that basic game, there's no interaction whatsoever no. uh and really made for a, a you know a, a fun interesting i could do this alone on my own sort of uh solo game yeah like tiana's point here hollow type you could probably play quicker than star trek pinball yeah the the triple board which we tried did have a bit more pvp there there was uh for anyone who knows the episode uh at one point in the game you can beam your triples off your ship onto your opponents so <laughs> there is definitely that interaction though i've seen someone live stream playing it so i assume you just beam them out and no one would get them there's like there's got to be a way to play that board solo anyway enough about star trek pinball for this week at least next up was our second try or at least my second try at cartographer's heroes which uh went way better than our first attempt at the barbershop bar which i talked about on our episode two weeks ago um that was a bit of an embarrassment as far as trying to learn a game at the table and then teach it and it just didn't go well now that I then went back, I watched a how to play video. I reread the rules. Now that I kind of had seen the cards and how everything plays, it now made a bit more sense. And it was much, much more enjoyable, which I kind of figured like playing that first time. I knew we were playing badly and wrong and people misunderstood things, but it seemed really solid. Um, and the game was fantastic. I really enjoyed it, even though we were literally sitting in front of a live musician. Um, so one thing that is nice about this game is you don't have to talk. You can just flip a card over and start drawing. Um, very solid, very thinky flip and right. This is, this is again, not, not a quick, short, rapid fire, highly random game. This is a very strategic game. I'm planning things out. And then the monsters add a nice little bit of tactics in there where, where your well-laid plans can be ruined by a Gorgon. Um, after two games, well out of town, we also broke this one out with Sean last weekend. Uh, I, we, I didn't want to officially call it a Sean con, but we did have Sean over and I wanted him to try all these new games we've been playing. So we played a game of cartographers heroes at chapter two, which was your first experience with the game. Yeah, no, this one's interesting and it's fun. And I think the, uh, the interaction, the fact that you are, you know, when those monsters come out, you are passing your, uh, your paper around makes for a really interesting divergence from your usual you know flip and right where everyone's mm. just doing their own thing the only thing i would say is if you are going to be playing this the first time take a flip through some of the cards get an idea yeah. for what is out there and what is possible to come up because there were a couple of mistakes i made that were really because i didn't grasp what would and wouldn't be able to come Fair. up uh, during that, they may not have, things might not have come up and I might have been, uh, messed up anyway, but not knowing the potential options, I might have left things open a little bit more differently. Yeah, totally fair. What I should do when I'm teaching is allow PA. If you want to look through the cards, go ahead. Cause personally, I'm the opposite. I don't want to know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I saw a card I've never seen before, but it's all different types of play. And I've realized playing with you that you prefer, like, even when we played, uh, Lorcana for the first time, you're like, man, I wish I'd looked through the deck. 
I've got I got to remember that for your gameplay style, you prefer to have a little bit more heads up. Well, and it all depends. Again, if, if we're all experiencing it for the first time, that's one that's thing. That's true. But if I if I'm playing with people who've played before, they've got that little advantage where yeah. you know the only difference is really that you've seen the cards, but that can yeah. make a bit of a difference. All right, next up, more Star Wars the deck building game. This is the Fantasy Flight Star Wars deck builder. I'd, I'd call that out because there's so many different Star Wars card games out there. I don't want to confuse people. Uh, Deanna and I got in a couple of games of this while out of town, and we're still digging it. Uh, we've now played a game with the full set of bases for each side, um, which surprised me by adding more game time than I expected. I wouldn't have thought by throwing in those additional options, like some of it was deciding what base, because when you have all of them, you pick your base. But just also like that blowing up that last base, you kind of think, well, it's one more base. And by the time you're getting to that last base, everyone's decks are kind of built up and the combos are going. You wouldn't expect it to last too long. So just a bit of a surprise that the full game was longer than I expected as far as difference from the core game that when you first try it. Uh, what we did do need to do next, though, and this is the, the big thing I want to get to, um, is to use some of the optional rules. Um, one of which would have really helped me out on another play, which was this past weekend with Sean. Um, because man, I think it was four turns in a row. It was all Imperial cards in the market. So I, I want to play with the rule where I can buy an Imperial card just to discard it because I, I feel like I, I got, I should have won that game. <laughs> it wasn't for the draw in that one. Now, Sean is not the Star Wars fan that I am, but I, 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 I had a really good feeling you were going to dig this game. Yeah, absolutely. I This isn't a game that requires an in-depth knowledge of the lore of Star Wars and remembering Rebels episode, you know, season two, episode 12, what happens 15 minutes in. None of that really matters. There were a couple oh. of characters I didn't recognize. There were a couple of ships I recognized but didn't know the name of. And it didn't matter at all. No. Um, this game, because of certain experiences we've had with other games, this <laughs> game with, that have strong similarities, uh, the teaching this game to me was pretty much instantaneous yep. because I had been playing the other game, uh, on the, on Steam the week before. Uh, and realistically, this is just, you know, Star Frontiers over again, uh, yep. um, with, with a theme and Star Realms. Know, Star Realms. There's, there's a couple of differences, but realistically, if you can play Star Realms, you can sit down and start playing this game instantly. Yeah. Uh, zero, yeah. zero teach required. It's going to be very interesting if I ever have to teach the game to someone who hasn't played Star Realms. That, that, that'll that be weird because so far I'm just like, okay, these are ships. They work like bases. You put them sideways. They stay in play. You have to blow them up first. These are, you know, these are yeah. the, the the shuttles. They they give you two resources and you can trash them to do something. Like it's it's so similar that, that, that like I said, it took, you, you're right. Like I, I barely had to teach you the game. I had to teach you the, the, the force and the whole way you can destroy things in the middle row. And that's about it. Yep. So yeah, right, no the next one's a big one um, in many ways. And that is destinies from lucky duck games. Now, Deanna and I bought this one as a gift to ourselves during an anniversary trip to Chatham last year. And sadly, we just got the game to the table now. Now, ironically, it was during another trip to Chatham. So hopefully I have, we haven't set a precedent that the only time we play destinies is in Chatham. But you know what? If it means we get out to Redburn Brewery more often, Dana, I'm sure we'll be all for it. Now, this is a story-based, app-driven campaign game that bills itself as an RPG without the need of a DM. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say this captures the feel or freedom of a full-on pen and paper role-playing game. But it is a really solid fantasy board game 
with solid RPG elements. And it features, well, so far, a fantastic story. We only played the intro scenario, and we both really enjoyed it. Um, one of the things I want to call out here is its very unique skill check system, where you have three stats, which are numbered 1 to 12. On the, the like bar, the graph that shows 1 to 12, you have tokens placed on these, three to four of them. Now, when you make a test, you roll set of 2d6 custom dice which i don't remember the exact numbers but like the the basic dice max out at four and then you can add these extra effort dice as well which you have to kind of earn during play you then total all your dice and look like find the stat and find the number and then count how many tokens are to the left of that so if you rolled an eight you count all your tokens that are eight or lower and i thought that was just a really neat fascinating system i've never seen before and i've read a lot of role-playing games so that just stuck out as something unique and new and very board gamey. It reminded me a bit of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition with some of its board game elements. I thought that was a, a very neat system that I've never seen before. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, this isn't a heavy game. It's it's less than a two, uh, but it seems to be very well reviewed. It's ranking yeah. uh, number 70 on thematic board games Oof. on Board That's Game Geek um with with you know a 7.7 after 8000 ratings oh. like that's that's a so, I mean, 7 7 after that many ratings is yeah. a very solid number mm-hmm. so the people who are playing this game are loving it now i don't know how long the intro was uh, they're saying it's a it's about a 90 minute to 150 minute game over 3 hours ah okay so there's now, a, a steep learning, learning curve game. yeah yeah steep steep learning curve then that's okay. There, there were some issues. I want to get into all the idiosyncrasies on this one right now. Um, but there are some things I wish the app did different. So, so the story is really engaging. The app works in general. Great. The problem I had is there's no way to back up. So one of the things that happened is we get the game out. Um, I had to punch it. Like this is all included in the three plus hours. It was closer to like three, three and a half hours. Um, I had to revise, re- reread the rules. Like I had read them before, but I hadn't, it, it, there's enough going on. I had to reread some of it. Um, but we're setting up the game. We're ready to go. We finally, we have the first tile on the map. We have our minis on the map and we're ready to start. And I look down and somehow one of my stats, one of the little tokens got bumped. And I'm like, I don't know if this is a six or a seven. There is no way to look up that information. Mm. I had to restart the entire adventure and get back to player setup for my character to know where that pip went. So that was just like, it's just annoying. I just wanted a history. I just want, I even went Googling. I'm like starting stats for, I, I was playing the noble, starting stat playing the noble in the first scenario. And no one had like a list. I started looking for pictures of people who were playing the same scenario to see if I could find it. Uh, Cause one of the things is this is a mix up of app game and board game. Well, the board game element is the app doesn't track your stats at all. That's all up to you to manage your tokens and everything. And when you love level up and when you lose levels, you move them yourself. The app has no clue what your current stats are. It just says take photos every time. Yeah. Every time you advance, yeah. take photos. Yeah. Something. Um, so, so that was a little, little, little bit glitchy. So we ended up having to honestly restart twice. Cause there was something else that didn't work right now. I don't even remember what, anyway, uh, that, that's more of a full review thing and I'll probably call it out. Now, honestly, I have a lot more to say about this one. And, and I, I, I don't want it to feel too much like a paywall, but if you want to know more about our first play of destinies, I have launched something new on the tabletop bellhop Patreon. Um, these are new articles. I'm going to call first thoughts. And the first of these is my first thoughts on destinies. Now, what I'm doing there is basically what we do now in this segment about talking about the game for the first time, but on Patreon, I can write and write and write. I can get into a lot more detail. 
Now, this is a new bonus for all of our Patreon patrons, regardless of your backer level. So go check that out when you have time and you can find out even more of my first thoughts on Destinies after playing the first adventure. All I get, all I really want to say here is it's a neat adventure. It's very well done. I think the rating is well-deserved, but there are a couple little idiosyncrasies that were a little annoying. What's nice about this, while, again, we don't like to have paywalls for our content, at the same time, we do tend to go a little long on our Bellhop's yeah. tabletop sometime, and this allows us to get all that detail out there to the people who really care, while yeah. the rest of you just know what we're playing but not necessarily all that detail that uh, ties up the podcast for an hour or so. Yeah, exactly. We have noticed this segment gets a little long. So another game we played together at Chapter 2, which is Zensu, which we just reviewed. So do you have anything else you want to say about Zensu that we didn't cover earlier? No, I mean, it's just, why aren't people talking about this game? Yeah. So 8,000 people have, have raided that other game. Like, where's the 1% of them that who also played Zensu? <laughs> all right. Saturday night. I wasn't ready for the gaming to end. So once you headed home, Deanna and I cracked open another round of beers and sat down and played Maglev Metro for the first time. Now, this is a weird one. This is an interestingly weighted trade game, train game. It's definitely not light and it's definitely a train game. So this is no ticket to ride, but also not nearly as simple as a whistle stop or spike, which I consider more train games. It features a lot of the same systems as games like Steam, Rails to Riches, or Age of Steam, but without any of the money. There's no money tracking. There's no buying things. Now, it's also no 18xx, but you will be building routes and improving your company. So it's this odd medium to light, light to medium train game that gives you that big train game feel sort of in a rather short game time, especially with two players. So this is going to be interesting because, again, I'm not a train person, not a train game person. Most of the defining features of what people consider train games is something I'm not interested in at yep. all. Uh, but this skips some of those. So yeah. this may be Sean's intro to train games or the, the stepping stone for, for Sean to play train games. I'm going to be tempted to get you to play. Oh, what is it called? There was the Iron Rail series and number one in the Iron Rail series from Capstone Games. I'm blanking on the name. Might be a better start because that one, you just put a cube saying you have trained and you have you have track in a hex. That would be like, to me, a little less than this to be a good one. Chicago, Chicago Express. Express. No, that's not the one I'm thinking of. Um, Iberian Rails, maybe. We talked about it on the show before. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So the basics of Maglev Metro is you take actions to do the basic train game stuff, build tracks, build stations, pick up passengers, drop off passengers, add new passengers to stations, move your train, etc. Now, how powerful each of these actions is, is based on how many robots of three different colors you have next to each action on your personal player board that represents your company. Every time you deliver a robot to an appropriately colored station, instead of, you know, getting money or points, you take the robot and you put it on your player board, which upgrades those basic actions. Uh, it's very fascinating. Now, eventually, someone is going to build a station that holds commuters as well. Now, commuters are kind of like the second part of the game. These also end up going on your board when delivered to the right spot, but are generally used to unlock endgame scoring opportunities instead of improving your actions. Um, that's a probably about... Uh, the best overview I can give without going too long. It's a very solid system. It's very easy to pick up. 
And this is coming from the same designer with some good chops here, right? It's the designer of Castles of Mad King, Ludwig, and Suburbia. Which, uh, you know, both fantastic games that we love. So uh, it's got great pedigree there. And uh, we'll we'll see what Sean thinks of train games. Yes, when we get to it. Now, and one thing I do want to call out, and what really caught my attention on this game, we saw it at Origins the first time, is two-layer player boards and a double-sided three-layer player, uh, like, central board. And then one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a train game, something I've never seen before that I think is fascinating, is acrylic track tiles that can stack on the same hex. This lets multiple players build on the same hex and keeps it clear to see through the transparent tiles where everyone's going. And then there's the cool metal trains that hold the passengers. Yeah, no, watching the unboxing for this one was great. We'll have to have to get that up on yeah. YouTube shortly for everyone to see all the uh, neat components. Now, as for our first game, we enjoyed it, but we didn't love it. Like it just there was I think both of us, Deanna and I wanted more of a train game, more of a heavier, you know, sit down, play a route building train games, brain burny, heavy and fairly long. That's not this. Now, it's the same kind of game as those bigger games, but this is shorter and lighter. Like, there's a thing where the game talks about shifting from delivering robots to delivering commuters and how important it is when to make that shift. And I think we had commuters on the board by turn two. Like, maybe we just weren't playing properly. I don't know. But everything just felt rushed. Now, there are two sides of the map, and one is the easier New York side of the board. And with only two people, that could be the contributing factor here. Well, and the fact that you are both uh, gamers who are capable and, and willing to play, you know, 18xx if it comes down right. to it. Uh, whereas this, as we've said, isn't that. Now, this is another one. Uh, Patreon patrons or prospective patrons, I did write up quite a bit more about Maglev Metro over on our Patreon. So for now, I'll just say I, I feel this game has a spot. I think it, it might even be a sweet spot that didn't exist before, but we haven't figured out if that's a spot we want to play in yet so the second game is going to be telling right like our first experience um experience with um starship captains right maybe this is a starship captains part two where i'm going to sit down to the second game knowing how quick things are going to move and how quick things are going to happen and be like yes this is awesome this is this is what i wanted steam in an hour or maybe it's just going to be a miss i'm i really couldn't tell you right now be interesting to see if uh, you managed to stop it to three players and got Gwen in there uh, yep. to play as well and see if that third player makes a makes a strong enough difference. I mean, we know it'll go a little longer if Gwen's playing, yes. but uh, <laughs> just a little. Oh, but, Gwen uh, that, that may game. make a, a, a real difference in the challenge and and uh, and, you know, skill level required to sort of push it up yep. there a little bit in difficulty. So back to game, Sean and I played together um, with Tiana as well. We had another play of Marrakesh. And honestly, the more I play this game, the more I love it. Um, I love Steffenfeld games, and this just feels like home. Like, I, I play it, and I'm like, I, it's Sean saw me saying it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm making my moves, and I'm planning, and I'm like, oh, I miss this style of game. I really like those massive decision trees. Um, they're just, and, and how agonizing some of those decision points are. And, and, and I hate some of the parts of the game, like, oh, I hate this game, but it's in a good way. It's that you're challenging me and I need to figure out this puzzle. And it's so rewarding when you do figure out the puzzle. And sometimes it's so frustrating when you figure out the puzzle, but then the Keshi gets stuck in the damn cube tower. Uh, more so than any other game we played, the cube tower had a huge impact on our game on Saturday. And then there's the fact that, like, it make it sound like this huge, heavy spreadsheet of a game, but it's not. It's it's mechanically simple. 
and I can teach the basic actions for each of the 12 Keshi types uh, so quickly now. Like, like we did a full rules teach at the beginning because it had been long enough since Deanna and Sean had played, and, and even myself, I had to refresh myself on a few of the rules. And and the game, like, feels and looks massive and overwhelming, but, like, you can walk through how to take each of the individual actions so quickly. You know, I'm really torn about this because I don't dislike the game at all. This is this is a solid game. I can see all the intricacies and what makes a Feld game a Feld, and I can absolutely see why you love this game. And I do enjoy playing it, but I think for some reason this particular game, even though I have been enjoying more games, this particular game is a game that just doesn't quite hit me on the right level. Like, I like playing it, but there's a level that you and D are engaged in the game that I don't reach. Um, you know, D, D is, D is making sure she knows what every one of those tiles you, she can buy do, does so that she can maximize this, you know, one specific thing she's doing on. And, and mm-hmm. I just, I, I haven't been able to get myself to engage to that next That's level. That's fair. Yep. Uh, I, and so in, in some ways you guys are literally playing the game on a different level than me. Now, that being said, I still came in. Did I, did I come in second or I just ended second. up in third or, you know, I, I did all right um, yep. because there are a lot of ways to score. It's just that there's a, you know, really playing well and, and playing all right is, 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 you know, not that far apart. The scores, the scores are, are pretty tight as long as you haven't done anything horribly wrong. Right. Um, so you really do. I mean, the, the fact that the D is, is, you know, scheming to find every little <laughs> point she can out of every little, um, you know, possible action is what puts her into the lead and, and, and makes her, and, you know, makes, makes that happen and makes that yep. difference. I'm still loving it. I, I, I think the fact that you still enjoy it, despite the fact that it can be played on a different level, like, like for you, you're more of a, Oh, I'm going to take a gray action. Now let's see what I can buy. Whereas D's like, I've planned out that on the third round, when it comes around again, I'm going to make sure I have just enough cashies to be able to buy those two tiles in this one. And before I can do that, I'm going to have these figs from this action. And you're more like, okay, this round, what do I need? Right. You're oh, playing yeah. more it, tactical. It's 3D chess more strategic. Chess. 100 percent. All right. Finally, we have another brand new game to us. This is all of us. It was brand new. And that is the stuff of legend from Third World Studios or 3WS Games. Um, This is a review copy that we brought home. Um, It's a hidden trader game based on the graphic novel series of the same name um, that I admit I have not read, so I have no vested interest here. And this was another game that was completely different than I expected, so much so that I don't know where the original idea got in my head. Um, Now, this wasn't something I discovered when we sat down to play on Sunday. But actually, when I did the unboxing, for some reason in my head, when I met with 3WS, who actually were, we were meeting with them to learn about their new game, Charcuterie, um, something near and dear to my heart, and kind of saw this, and I'm like, oh, I always wanted to try that game. Um, I, in my head, I thought we were getting a campaign-based story game with lots of miniatures and a kind of skirmish game, like something like Stuff Fables or Mice and Mystics. And this game is nothing like that at all, um, except for the theme matches Stuffed Fables. It's something different. 
It's, it, it is. It's very different. And it's even different as far as hidden trader games, at least as I know them. I know you've said that there are some others like it. But the mm-hmm. fact that the, the traitor, uh, and who is and isn't a traitor can shift and ebb and flow throughout the game mm-hmm. is really interesting. It's not about, you know, you're the bad guy. They're the good guys. It's about who your loyalty is to during the game and, and yeah. your loyalty can shift throughout. And I think that makes it um, a little trickier for some people. Yep. Uh, and I think there's a certain level of understanding and grasping of the concept of what the game is. Yes. That is required and, and may not have been 100% clear when we sat down and did it. Which, which honestly, like there were aspects of that game I totally didn't get until we sat down. Yep. And a lot of that had to do with the trader mechanics in it. Um, this game plays much more like Battlestar Galactica than any of the other hidden trader games that I played. It is not Shadows Over Camelot, where you start and maybe there's a trader, maybe there's not, and that never changes. This is more of the shifting factions where Cylons can switch over to become, uh, I forget what, they become loyal Cylons. And there's the human sympathizers. I think that might be the one I'm thinking of. Or there's the Cylon sympathizer. Like, there's a whole thing where you can shift. That happens in this game. Um, The theme is fantastic, right? This is a group of toys entering the closet, transporting themselves to the dark where they find they become real and can be injured and killed. They're searching the dark for their boy who's been captured by the boogeyman. And of course the trick is, and what we've already alluded to is is one of or more of the toys for whatever reason, whether it's greed, manipulation or fear has sided with the boogeyman. Now the actual gameplay involves moving together around a map, visiting randomly determined locations that underneath them have randomly determined encounter cards, which makes it very um, replayable. It seems, seems highly replayable. I don't think any two games would be the same. Now, most of the encounters are going to put baddies on the board, which you do at the battle. So I guess there's that small aspect of skirmish battle because you do put miniatures on the board, but there is no dice rolling or anything here. When you battle, it's very deterministic based on card play, and more often you're going to run than fight. Um, you're trying to find an exit. And there's chits number one to seven, but only four on the board. And the proper exit is the highest number on the board, unless it's a seven. And there's also a one up and then the one is the exit. So there's a little funky thing here. And then, you know, some of the players can pee, can not tell the other ones. There's just a lot going on in this game. And it's, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also somewhat overwhelming. It is. And I, and I think. There's also an, like one of the mechanics, you actually have two sort of stats. I want to call them. They're not stats, yep. but two ways your character interacts with the game. And some of the cards are stained and, and that makes such a massive difference in the game mm-hmm. because you're not only talking and, and, and trying to cooperate whether or not you're worried about the trader or not. Even if you took the trader aspect completely out, the yeah. stained aspect which drastically changes how you're going to interact with the game if you play a stained action or if someone assists with a stained action um, is really kind of, of powerful and makes for mm. a really more thought than I would have thought you needed for this yeah. game. Yeah, it's definitely not a light game. This 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 is not a kid's game. <laughs> you will, like I played with my kids. My kids are in high school, right? Um, I, I, it's, it's weird. Yeah. Cause I, like the, the players play cards, take actions, which involve skill checks to accomplish tasks or when fighting, um, the, the it, and, and it's all about getting the right number of symbols to do stuff. And another huge aspect of the game 
is the fact that hand management, you only start with seven cards, except for one of the characters gets extra. And when your hand runs out, you get to draw new cards. But every time that happens, bad things happen. That's that's the trigger for terrible things to happen in this game is when someone runs out of hand of cards, you actually flip a coin and the boy either sinks deeper into the darkness or the boogeyman gets involved personally. And some of the things are nasty. And then there's a whole aspect of voting with this hidden trader, like almost everything you go to do in the game. Everyone's got to kind of give a thumbs up or thumbs down to uh, and, and distrust of other players is a feature of the game. Because even if someone started off loyal, like, like Sean said, they can change. It's very mutable than other games, which is, is kind of fascinating. I think it was neat. Like it, it wasn't at all close to what I thought it was going to be, even when I knew it was a hidden trader game. Um, it's, it's cool. It's, it's interesting. Um, it reminds me, like I said, more of uh, the Shadows of Camelot a bit, but more so the more I think about it, Battlestar Galactica. Um, it's, it's definitely semi-cooperative. And one thing that does work for me is because you're playing a character because you're, you're a toy and because there's an evocative story around it, I don't mind the whole lying aspect, right? I don't like the games where Mo has to lie to Deanna. I am perfectly cool where the Jack in the box lies to the bear. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on this one. Uh, I have not done a lot of hidden trader games. Uh, I play, I've played a bunch of shadows over Camelot back in the day, but I never have played BSG yet. Um, and I was kind of on the fence about this one. I, I don't really know what I think yet, but it, it's definitely not a, oh yeah, no, that's fine. I, can't, I don't mind lying at all. Um, I, I'm definitely on the fence still. So yeah. Now this is, was our first play, right? Uh, it was fumbling. It wasn't terrible. I'm sure we did extreme things. Like we caught a few of the extreme things we did. Um, there were things we were looking up in the book. Um, there were a few things we Googled. We were checking FAQs. Um, what I want to do in it, and I don't know when this is going to work out, is I want to play with the exact same people. I want all six of us to sit down and play it again because we've all played once now. And I think especially my kids understand the trader mechanic a little better because uh, there was obviously some confusion there. Uh, lots of games played over the last two weeks. Um, a trend, I, like I said, I hope we get to keep this up. So to that end, I've already called it out once, but we, I am co-hosting an event, the Barbershop Bar this weekend. I will be bringing the stuff of legend. If anyone wants to check that one out, I also plan on bringing Lem and cartographer heroes. Um, the new game I'm hoping to hit the table this weekend that needs a large player group is dubious from arcane wonders. Um, this is a different kind of social deduction game. This is a game where you are given a role in a secret and you need at least one other player to get it right, but you don't want everyone to get that right. So it's, it's, it's a different style. Um, I, I think it's going to be closer to Psycho Babylon in a way. Um, but there's not traitors. It's just, it's, it's, it's about deceiving people. So I said a different version. So I am hoping to share my first thoughts on dubious next week. Um, this is, we, we are looking forward to working more with arcane wonders and, and this will be the first game of theirs we're officially reviewing. So it wasn't quite what I expected yet again, but reading through it, it's, it sounds interesting, but this is one of those games. I have no clue how it's actually going to play until we sit down and play the game. And don't forget now the new feature on our Patreon patron. If you do want Mo's first thoughts in more detail than we're going to give you here on the uh, podcast, you yep. can check us out at patreon.com slash tabletop bellhop. Yeah. So far I've got thoughts on destinies and on maglev Metro. I'm not sure what I'll write up about next. Before we start locking things down, let's take a moment to thank a selection of our tabletop bellhop, Patreon patrons. Go ahead. Uh, Ducas, thank you. Ron F., thank you, Ron. Roger Balash, thank you. 
We're getting people in the chat tonight. It's perfect timing. David Miller Jr., thank you. And Brian Kurtz, thank you. Well, that was the double bell. That means our shift's coming to an end, and we're going to have to lock the lobby doors. Even if we're not here live, you can always find us at tabletopbellhop.com, all over the web as Tabletop Bellhop, one word, and on your podcatcher of choice as the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. If you've enjoyed tonight's show and we let you know about a game maybe you may have missed, you can say thanks by tipping your bellhop at patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop. Well, that's all for us tonight. Another way you can show your support is by giving us a thumbs up, a like, leaving a comment, or better yet, tell your friends and fellow gamers about our show. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And And game game on. on. Find full reviews, show notes, and more at tabletopbellhop.com. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>